So, a lot going on. Uh, Karen, I, I, uh, every, you know I, how I like to open in a psalm. So, this morning I asked Karen, I said, so, why don't you pick the psalm today? And the theme is faithfulness. So, she came up with, uh, I think, Psalm 89, correct? Psalm 89. When we think about faithfulness, because I think that... Uh, passage we were looking at last week, and we want to look at that a, a little bit in closing, because I opened up some issues last week, because it's a warning passage, but it's primarily about faithfulness, our faithfulness, but it's also about God's faithfulness, so Karen, would you like to... I'm just reading one through eight before you all end. It's only 52 words. <laughs> Two and a half pages. Go for it. Read out loud. I will sing of the Lord's name, love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you establish your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness, too, in the assembly of the Holy One. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Amen. His faithfulness surrounds him. We understand that God has made a covenant um, with humanity, and we studied uh, both, I know Sean did a special teaching, and Bob did a special teaching on covenants in general, but we also studied the, the covenant with David concerning Messiah when we went through Samuel. And the covenants are there not just to understand the promise of God, but uh, to also find comfort and encouragement in knowing that he's chosen us and taken action to redeem us. He's working on our behalf, um, which is the grace of God to us. So last week we were taking a look at chapter 3, and and, uh, today we're going to look at chapter 4. And I raised several questions last week when we were going through chapter 3. And this was the the summary I gave you last week about chapter 3, that it's all about faithfulness. And that uh, I pointed out that there was uh, a couple of if clauses in there that are in the Greek third-class conditionals, which means that it's... uh, that there's a sense of, of possibility that it's not a certainty. Uh, so it's not a reality assumed true for the sake of emphasis or argument, but rather that it's uh, an actual uh, condition where um, you could have the, the outcome is not known. And uh, specifically, we saw that in verse 6 and in verse 14 it says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And in verse 16 it says, 
1614, excuse me, it says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And anytime I read those kind of statements, especially understanding a little bit of the underlying language and the, the sense of uh, what this condition actually uh, suggests, it makes me pay attention to it. In, in a way, I get nervous. Uh, because I'm one of those who believes uh, once saved, always saved. And uh, so I told you that I would reveal that at the end of last week, and I don't know that I clearly did. That I believe that the effective work of God is indeed effective. That uh, God doesn't uh, save us later to be lost. So when I, if I hold that position and that confidence in God... What do I do with these kinds of passages, and why are they in there? Because it would be very easy to just set it aside and say, well, I don't want to believe that part of the Bible if it really says that my salvation could be lost. Because if my salvation could be lost, I guarantee you I'm one of those that would lose it. I'm uh, just that way. Um, so we need to understand what this understanding of faithfulness is the preacher here in Hebrews is talking about and how that relates to our salvation and that I was waiting for the question to get asked last week does this mean we can lose our salvation and sure enough we got the question so that, <laughs> I, that tells me you're paying attention so um, how did you wrestle with that now that you've had a week to, to think about it and to ponder I know I came in this morning and uh, and Doug said well you're just wrong Dave uh, uh, once saved, always saved. And I had to assure him that, no, I actually believe that. Uh, so I guess I'm not wrong, right? Well, the reason that I know that that's true mm -hmm. is Charles Stanley says so. <laughs> <laughs> and that's important. <laughs> we do want to pay attention to good Bible teachers and what they say and why they say it. What we don't want to do is we don't want to have a doctrine that we don't understand where it came from or why it's there, where we can't support it. So we need to be able to support what we believe from the Bible. If we, uh, okay, I did believe when I was saved and accepted the Lord, the experience I had, but I have been a backslider. Right. I mean, there would be no reason to. I mean, because you know you can't be perfect. I mean, I believe everybody would know that, but maybe not. Right. And that um, when people get honest with themselves, they realize <clears throat> the shortcomings that they have and what they're really bringing to God. So if God saved us based on our merit or our work, we would not be saved. We would not hold true to the end. So obviously there's something larger going on. Or none could be saved. You know, I have all of my life believed that there's no such thing as once saved, always saved. Until about three years ago, a friend of mine explained it to me, and I still didn't agree with it. So I said, God, I need you to show me something in your word that proves to me this is true. She took me through all the scriptures. 
And he took me to the story of Nicodemus. Yes. Where you must be born in the water and the spirit. Now, yes. now, the natural points to the spiritual. You can't be unborn in the natural. Right. So you can't be unborn in the spiritual. If you're if you're in your family, so I have this is my granddaughter. No matter what she does, she knows the family rules. She's always going to be my granddaughter. If she right. steps outside, she gets <laughs> drinking and drugs. She's still my granddaughter. Nothing changes that. She doesn't get disinherited or disowned. Right. But she would be backsliding. Right. That's how the Lord brought that to my attention. I never stop being his no matter what I do. And then he took me to the story of the prodigal son. Right. The prodigal son was never disinherited. And that's where Alan was going last week, uh, Mr. Palm, when he indicated that uh, the wandering in the desert, which is alluded to here as an example of disobedience, that those were still God's people. But they didn't enter into God's blessing because of their disobedience. But they weren't, God didn't unchoose them and say, okay, well, you guys are out, you know, I'm going to bring in the Philistines and they're going to be my new chosen people. Right? That didn't occur. That they were. Uh, God's chosen people, and he would not unchoose them. However, for a full relationship with him, uh, more was required. And that, and we understand that. Um, those of you that are married, if you got married and you never spoke to your husband or wife again, um, that that was the end of it, it would be a pretty dead marriage. In fact, you wouldn't enjoy any of the blessings of marriage. Right? You might actually be able to say, yeah, I'm recorded in the logs in Vancouver, Washington County Court, but beyond that, you could live in different states right? and not have any uh, relationship at all. In fact, if somebody looked at you, they would probably say, I don't think you're married at all. And so we understand that there is that... Um, kind of aspect associated with being chosen and then enjoying the blessing of whatever that relationship is. And at the same time, we need to honestly ask the question, if I am chosen and I am saved, how come I don't experience uh, faithfulness? How come I don't show fruit of the spirit. How come, um, like in the example I gave of marriage, uh, there is no marriage relationship? People wouldn't know. And so I, I, I teach, let me uh, turn this off because I'm going to go to the board here. I teach uh, theology. And uh, a couple things I'll say. That's the question number for Karen. So if you get a question in class and you don't want to ask it, just text her. Um, or you can also fill out a card up here. Last week I didn't get any cards, so I figured y'all got this. <laughs> <laughs> so he's still going to go over it again, just to be honest. Again, because this is going to come up again. Wait till we get to chapter 6. Wait till we get to chapter 10. Uh, these are very strong messages, and we want to understand what this author is trying to communicate to us what Dr. Peters is. Uh, there is a theological position which is characterized by an acronym called TULIP. This theological position is called Calvinism. 
And so those of you that are good Baptists probably understand most of the points that make up this theological position. There are other theological positions. I'm going to use this one not necessarily because I'm saying believe this, this is right, but because it brings out certain points that we all wrestle with. And the first, the T here is about total depravity. What this has to do with is uh, our standing with God. If we were in this place of goodness, with, together with God, when we were created, if this is the highest point of goodness, and this is the lowest point of goodness, this would be total depravity. And what occurred at the fall, I believe, is that we became totally depraved. Now what that means is not that you are the, um, that you will always do the most evil that you can do, but you would never naturally choose the good. So there are those that are in this condition, and you look at them and you say, well they still give to charities and they still do good things. But the condition of their heart is not one where they would do that uh, of their own volition, apart from some external action, which we'll talk about here in a minute, such that um, they might do good things for self-benefit. They might recognize, oh, if I give to a charity, I get a tax deduction. <laughs> or, if I give to a charity, I get power and influence over government. Right? If I give to a political cause. So, there are a lot of reasons why people will do things that look good. And we have to understand that just because we're totally depraved doesn't mean that we don't occasionally do good things. But the natural condition of the heart is one that is depraved. So, if you're in this state of total depravity, you need some intervention. If you're going to be restored to goodness. Because in this state, you cannot have relationship with God and you are eternally lost if you're down here. So, God is in heaven... And he has requirements for his kingdom, which is that there is only goodness there, because that's who he is. And everything around him is goodness. So if you're in this state, you are eternally separated from God. And the only way that you can be restored is for some intervention to occur. Um, some will argue about that. They'll say, no, I really only fell about halfway down. And as a result of that, you can actually choose the good. And so you could actually redeem yourself by doing good works. And that was an argument that actually occurred in the, the third century, um, or actually the fourth century, uh, where there was a, a Catholic theologian who first introduced this idea of total depravity, and then there was another Catholic theologian who said, no, you only fall about halfway down, and man is perfectible. So that means that you can work your way back to God. And that became branded as a heresy. It's called the Pelagian heresy. And, uh, but a lot of people believe that today. And the reason why is because it goes well with modernism. Modernism is the idea that the, the universe is a big machine, and if we can master the machine, we can become perfectible. We can cure diseases, we can do all sorts of things to prolong life. We can affect goodness, our own goodness. And I would say, no, that's not what I believe, and I don't believe the Bible teaches it, and I can support it. So if you're here... Um, you need some intervention. You need 
There's a wooing. Because we're separated. Right? And this is all about relationship. You have to um, have the atonement applied to you. And that God doesn't just do this and not change the way that you are. In other words, you have to be changed. In fact, you have to be born again. You have to be not just fixed in your brain. You have to have a completely new heart. That's what the Bible tells us. The old heart became totally corrupted. So you have to have a new one. That's why Nicodemus had that conversation with Jesus. Uh, and Jesus said, you know, you're, you're the teacher. You should know these things. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. Um, the man needs to be both born in the flesh and born in the spirit. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? And Jesus says, um, let's, let's look at that, because this is really key to understanding, especially understanding chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Hebrews. So this is in John chapter 3. So John chapter 3, this is the, the dialogue between uh, Nicodemus. And I'll just go ahead and read it. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, and no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, if I put this in the language of heaven. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Remember last week we talked about the Son of Man and the title and what that means? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man might, must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So here you see the tension. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. There is one who came to make atonement. And the way he made atonement, he came from heaven, descended, Son of Man, fully human, fully God. He came to make atonement to be lifted up. And the example given is of when the people were in the desert, they were wandering around, and they were murmuring about, you know, the food and the, the sun and the giants and all the just different problems they had, right? So they're wandering around the desert, and God says, well, if you're going to be a bunch of whiners, I'll show you what whining really is here. It's not a bunch of snakes. So these snakes come, and they're biting the people, and the people are dying. And so they realized, whoa, we just messed up. We crossed God again. Uh, so they go to Moses and say, Moses, ask God to take away the snakes. So Moses goes to God and says, people are dying, Lord. And God says, I want you to take 
uh, an image of a snake, and I want you to put it on a pole, and I want you to put it at the edge of the camp. And if anyone is bitten by a snake, all they have to do is look at that snake on the pole, and they'll live. Did he take away the snakes? He actually worked within the condition at hand. Did people get bit? They still got bit. And that bite would lead to death. Unless they had faith and believed that what God said was true, was true. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. That the atonement provided is effective. But you need to respond to it. You need to look at the snake. Now, in doing that, does is that a work that you do? Or is that, an, what is faith? Is faith a work? Like Pelagius, where you're uh, reaccomplishing goodness? No. It's believing what God said is true. And you do it in action. How you live. And so we characterize that in the word faithfulness. That's why I say chapter 3 is all about faithfulness. Well, if this is what God's about doing, He's going to make sure that you hear. So there's an irresistible calling that um, if you're one of the elect, and this atonement is effective for you, this theological framework. He's going to make sure that you hear and respond. And finally, he's going to make sure that you persevere in your faith all the way to the end. So if you make a confession of faith when you're uh, five years old at Sunday school, and the reason you did that is because God chose you and provided an effective atonement and you responded to that calling that in the end, regardless of what you see as evidence in this world, you will still persevere in the end. This is one understanding of Scripture. Um, there are those that would disagree with this. There are those that would disagree with this. There are those that would um, disagree with this even. That it isn't totally dependent on God's choice. It's also dependent upon us and what we bring. I don't see support for this in the scripture. I argue with this one about limited. Limited is the idea that the atonement is effective only for those that are really saved. That's true. It's only effective for those that are really saved. But it's not true in the sense that the atonement is for all. Christ died once for all. And for all means for all. Yes? Do you, so um, are you election only or do you see any room for whosoever will? Because, um, you know, everybody, yes. everybody argues. I mean, yes. the best theologians. Yes, yeah, so, so the, the, uh, the question comes up right here about free will. And do we truly have, and I'm going to use a word here, libertarian free will, which means that it is totally unrestricted what you can choose. So, uh, in a sense, God has libertarian free will. 
He can choose whatever it is that's possible for him to choose. Um, but there are certain things that God can't do. Right? God can't tell why. Right? It's not in his character. He's not going to be evil. So, in that sense, he has limited, it's not truly libertarian, free will. Well, he created us in his image. We also have limited free will. What that means is, is that um, there are, uh, we have the true ability to make a choice. God does not make it for us. However, our range of choices is limited. And if our range of choices is limited, so God says, um, I created you in such a way that you love cookies. <laughs> so, I created it in such a way I love cookies, and he said, now, I got chocolate chip from the oven, I've got macadamia nut, white chocolate over here, I've got oatmeal raisin right here, right? Um, oh, and yeah, there's a ginger snap. Or maybe a snickerdoodle, right? We have choice. What do you want? You want oatmeal? Raisin? So that's the idea of limited uh, choices, that we don't have full range. In other words, I can't choose um, to live forever because it's not within my ability to bring that about. So if I choose to reject God, I'm choosing death, but I don't have any control over that. It's going to happen because of the way that God set up the universe and the economy of his kingdom. So uh, then there are degrees. It's like, well, okay, if God is truly sovereign, he's the king, um, does he allow us free choice or does he determine the choices we're going to make? Because he knows what they are. It says that. God knows the end from the beginning. So if he knows the end from the beginning, um, do I really have any free choice? Because he knows I'm going to pick oatmeal raisin. And he knows you're going to pick macadamia and that white chocolate. Right? Um, but knowing our preferences and knowing how we're created doesn't determine it. And so there are those that would say, no, we truly have free will. It's not libertarian free will. We have a restricted range. But within that, we truly make the choice. God knows the outcome, and his plan will not be uh, diverted. In other words, uh, there are no surprises to God. Some would say, no, God is surprised. He doesn't know how history is going to unfold, because he doesn't know what Hitler's choice is. Um, no, God knows what evil does, and how it's going to unfold. And he knows where intervention is the optimum. And evidently, that point was about 2,000 years ago. Um, he knows that. And his plan will not be diverted. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have choice in the process. We each have individual choice. And that's, there's a tension there. Right? It's like, but how can I have choice if he knows what I'm going to do? <laughs> I don't know what a good answer to that is, other than that what you see is you see both in, in Scripture. The Scripture seems to teach both, and with the same authority. Right. Because people are always pre 
presented with the option when Jesus is teaching. Yes. He's always giving people the choice. Yep. Because the kingdom of God is at hand, and that's the good news. Okay, some will do that, some will not. But he always acts as if the choice you've got is a real choice. And it is a real choice. In the sense that um, I know and I have experienced that there are some that even though God desires them, do not choose him. God desires them. Um, in fact, they're probably, if you look at all the merit of people, God should desire them more than he desires me. Right? But God desires uniquely and individually um, us to redeem us. For whatever reason, that's God's desire. And there are some we know that reject God's choosing. Now, some would say, well, if God is sovereign in the sense that um, if he chooses you, he's going to make sure that you respond. And there are examples of that in the Bible. Apostle Paul, right? Did Apostle Paul have a choice on the road to Damascus? <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot. Well, yeah, he had a choice about how to respond to uh, Jesus knocked him off his horse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that's convincing when you knock off your horse, but I mean, uh, it's hard to argue with what he was seeing. And, and that's what Jesus said. It's hard to argue with what you're seeing, isn't it, Paul? Why are you kicking against the goats, man? Uh, and the, the pricks that went on a wagon in the front, they would put these sharp, pointy things so that the oxen would kick the cart and destroy it. And, uh, and so that means that there is a correction, there is a direction of God in people's lives. And he's saying, how come you're kicking against the direction, Paul? I chose you. I provided atonement for you. I'm sitting here talking to you in the way. How come you're still kicking? So the kicking part is, is Paul's kicking. That's his choice. But he also was not going to succeed in that. Because God's plan would not be thwarted. And God used Paul in a powerful way to reach the Gentiles, as we know. Um, so, in that sense, we see the sovereignty of God being actually directive or controlling. In other instances, we see the sovereignty of God being that he has the authority. No one can come into his kingdom by force. Right? Um, so, in that sense, he has the authority to uh, set up how people will gain citizenship into the kingdom. He doesn't require that people gain citizenship. It's just you can't be part of his kingdom unless you get it. So that's why it talks about Colossians. So we actually have a change of citizenship. We're actually adopted into God's family. So you see this language about where we are responsive and have free choice in responding, um, but it all starts with God. Whether it is controlling in a directive sense, or whether it is um, permissive, and that that's our desire, and we have uh, an ability to truly respond to it. So you see both in the Bible. And that's the tension here. I mean, what do you do with this? But what is really important is this idea of perseverance. Perseverance is an indicator. Right? It shows that God is being effective 
and what he's doing. That he told the truth, that he really does love us, that he has provided an effective means to restore us, that he is wooing us, um, and that the evidence of that is perseverance. So that's what you see in chapter 3. It says that uh, in verse 6, it says, uh, but Christ was, a, was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to our confidence and, to, and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In other words, perseverance is demonstrated as an evidence that God is doing this. Same thing in, in verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Again, it's talking about perseverance as an evidence that this is actually going on. Jesus says this to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. He says it's like the wind, right? You don't control the wind. The wind blows from whatever direction it's coming from and is going wherever it's going to go, and you don't have any control over that, but you feel the effect of it. You can see what it does. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can see what it does. And so, um, I stand before you. You have absolutely no idea if I'm uh, right with God. There is no way that you can discern that, because you can't see the condition of the heart. God can see the condition of the heart, but what you can see, and the reason why you come, I hope, and listen, is because you think that I'm not a total idiot, pagan, uh, heretic, but rather that there's uh, truth and uh, worth in the word of God and that he has given me an ability to help share that with you through my life and the training and all of the things that he's done for me, right? In other words, there's some evidence of faithfulness that you're seeing and saying, oh, I'll bet you Dave's a Christian. Amen. And, I, and I would identify myself as a, as a follower of Christ, that he is my, my savior, that he died for me, and that I have made him my king. I have submitted to his complete authority in my life. Does that mean I don't kick against the goats once in a while? <laughs> like I say, if it's possible to lose salvation... I would probably be the first one as evidence to show that that could happen. Um, but God is, in fact, effective in what he does. So what I would say is that the assurance of salvation, which was the question, how you can know, does depend on one's relationship with Christ. Your salvation doesn't, but the assurance of it does, how you feel about it. No one earns salvation through faithfulness, but that faithfulness is evidence of one's salvation. So we are saved by grace. It's the work of God. And if he did it, it's done. Through faithfulness. Through faith. Right? And that that's not uh, a work that I do, but it's an evidence that God has actually done the work in me of redemption. So a drifter may have a true relationship, that is salvation. In other words, a backslider was the word that was given earlier. But has no assurance of right standing since God's grace is not manifest in their life. And there would be no evidence to the world that you that Christ is doing anything effective in you and if that is the case man pay attention to what this guy's saying 
because there's a contrast, and I know I blew my time, uh, there's a contrast between chapter 3 and chapter 4, which is in chapter 3 saying, hey, pay attention to the state of faithfulness in your life, because this indicates something. And without God in your life, you cannot enter into God's rest, which is really, really, really an important thing entering into God's rest. This is where we desire to be. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close just by reading it. So we actually did read chapter 4. Then we'll close <laughs> And there's a lot more here, right? I mean, I've just scratched the surface, and I didn't develop some of the other positions. But I want you to know what this is saying to us. Um, therefore, let us fear if... While a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his words were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as he has has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Key verse there, 410. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the petition of the preacher in Hebrews. That's the petition this morning. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for granting us the time. I realize I'm over, but... uh, granting us the time to go through your word and look at it uh, a little bit more in depth. Lord, just ask that you would apply this to our hearts. It is challenging, um, in many ways hard to understand. But Lord, uh, help us to wrestle in those areas of tension so that we see your grace, so that we see your hand, what you're doing at work in us, and we can rest assured, knowing who you are, that you affect that with with 100% success, that which you set out to accomplish, and that that is the basis of our confidence and salvation, and that 
our faith in that fact of who you are is the assurance that we show to the world. Lord, I just thank you for this. I just ask that you would be with us in our infirmities and our frailness, that you would keep us and provide for us, protect us and serve us, Lord. We thank you so much. I ask that you be with Bob this morning in the, the sermon and that others that have not yet heard would hear the message of who you are and your salvation for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Please come. In your name we pray. Amen.